Good afternoon, and welcome to Bible Quest, New York City, New Jersey, Philly edition. We are here today, Joe Works from Fairlawn, New Jersey, and I, Jeff Smelser from Exton, Pennsylvania. Good afternoon, Joe. Hi, Jeff. How are you doing today? You have somebody sitting beside you. I do. Gardner Hall is joining us this afternoon. Great. Gardner, welcome to the webcast. Uh, Gardner works with uh, several congregations, but especially, I think, in the last few years with the West Harlem Church or the church that meets on West 139th in Harlem. Is that right, Joe? I mean, uh, Gardner? Yeah, that's right. I go there, and also I'm here in Fairlawn in the Spanish version. We meet here at 3.30 on Sunday afternoons, so... So we run around between New York City and uh, northern New Jersey on Sundays. But those are the two primary congregations I work with. And, and a, lot of, um, uh, a lot of your work is among Spanish-speaking brethren. And uh, we, we try to, on this webcast, we try to kind of let people know if you want to get in touch with us, um, you can reach out to us directly, personally, in person. And so we call it the Bible Quest uh, webcast, the New York City, New Jersey, Philly edition, to let people know this is where we are. And so let's just make people who are maybe uh, whose first language is Spanish be aware that's that's uh, kind of your area of expertise, right? Well, I would say I'm an expert, but I, that's what I try to, to, to work at. And uh, we have videos in Spanish on probably the easiest way to Look up with them, even if you don't speak Spanish but have Spanish speaking friends, go to YouTube and uh, just put in the uh, finder there. It is a Spanish word which means to grow in Spanish. It's the name of a little paper, Crescer, and you spell it C R E C E D. If you put that in the finder, C R E C E D, you'll see a bunch of videos there that uh, Roger Polanco helps me, Jerry Falk helps me, and, and we. We've got several hundred videos there, and uh, a lot of we have a lot of stuff available. And this, you can find this at www.crescid.com? There is some there, too, although we're having problems with our server right now. There is some of that information there. I'm just sending people right now to our YouTube, uh, which, which is fortunately a little more reliable. Jerry Falk works with me on crescid.com. We're trying to get a new server now. Okay. That's the keyword, crescid, on YouTube. We also are on Facebook, but uh, the easiest access is probably YouTube, and that word Chris said in the finder will get to us. All right. Well, great. So um, if you want to get in touch with Gardner Hall or see some of the videos that he and some of those he works with have put out, you know how to do it. Joe Works is in Fairlawn, New Jersey, the church that he works with regularly, although you you speak for two or three different congregations on a given Sunday. We, we were talking about that last week, right, Joe? Right, yeah. Last last Sunday, I was only with four different groups. So. <laughs> oh, four. Wow, yeah. <laughs> but uh, especially, and where you are right now is in your office at the meeting place of the church in Fairlawn, New Jersey, which meets on the corner of Morlot and Plaza. Very good. You have a good memory. And, um, and then I am uh, right now in the meeting place of the church in Exton, Pennsylvania, and we're out on the main line. Um, in Exton, Pennsylvania, just north of US 30. So if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can, uh, you know where to find us. We're local. You can uh, send us emails. Um, you can send me an email at jeff at biblequest.tv, I think gets it. Um, Joe? Uh, L-I-L Preacher Joe at AOL.com. There you go, Little Preacher Joe at AOL.com. Yeah. Well, today uh, we're going to talk about something that's really been in the in the news, current events-wise, here lately. Um, 
We're going to talk about sexual harassment, but we're going to talk about it from a biblical perspective. Um, so where would you like to start? Joe, you want to start, kick us off here? Well, I think it is important that we do talk about it from a spiritual vantage point. There's been so much in the news uh, discussing it from uh, Hollywood to football players, sports athletes, to especially now uh, politicians. Uh, And it seems as if a lot of those arenas are simply taking sides with whoever you like, uh, whether it's your team or your political party, and uh, we either vilify or justify individuals. But if we're going to truly be aligned with God, then we need to approach this from his vantage point. And let me interject here. We do encourage our our viewers, if you want to send us comments or questions as we talk about this subject, or if you have comments or questions on another subject, we should have time toward the end of the webcast. We can get to any topic that you'd like from us for us to discuss from a biblical perspective. Um, But this is a topic that's been in the news a lot lately. Of course, there was an election yesterday in Alabama um, that had a lot to do with this subject. Uh, But we're really not going to spend our time focusing on this politician or that movie star or or whoever, uh, you know, and and whether this one is is guilty or not. We're really going to want to talk about what is my responsibility as a Christian and especially what is my responsibility as a Christian man when it comes to um, sexuality and sexual relations Um, And I'll just throw this out. Uh, One of the things that's missing in the popular discussion in society right now uh, is the observation that the sexual relations belong in marriage. And a big part of the problem that we have is that we have a culture that has assumed that a man can seek sexual gratification from whomever, you know, wherever. And so he goes on the look to try to find this. Well, that's wrong. He needs to start with the understanding. This is something that is to be part of a marital relationship and nowhere else. He doesn't have a right to go be seeking whom else he might be able to um, have an opportunity with. Um, You know, Hebrews 13, let's just turn there real quickly. Hebrews 13th chapter. I have two passages that I want to start with just to kick things off. Hebrews, the 13th chapter and verse 4 says, Let marriage be had in honor among all, and let the bed be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. You know, if I understood that sexual relations outside of marriage, that's fornication. Why would I ever go seeking um, an opportunity with a woman to whom I'm not married? It's just not a matter of of actually committing adultery or actually committing fornication. It's this whole atmosphere of crude jokes, crude comments, crude suggestions. And I wonder if we could use the word epidemic. I know it's always existed. Uh, You go back as far as Sodom and Gomorrah, and you had uh, that type of sexual abuse. And and, and, in the Old Testament, you see a, a type of sexual harassment among evil people. But uh, it almost seems like that there is is a kind of an epidemic. Yeah, yeah, there is, and you know, there used to be there used to be kind of unwritten rules in in our society uh, going way back that there are certain things you don't talk about between the sexes. You, you don't talk about without uh, out, away from your spouse or, or with somebody other than your spouse. And what that did was that prevented um, 
that that prevented that those barriers were there and they provided a safeguard. Um, and I, I, this, this isn't my observation. I may be wrong and you may disagree with me here, but we say it's not just fornication. It's also a lot of crude jokes and so on. I'll say this. I, I believe most men when they, um, start talking to a woman and making sexual jokes and innuendo and that kind of thing, they are slyly testing the boundaries. They're slyly testing whether or not this woman would be receptive to something like that. And it's gotten so bad. Sometimes they're not very sly about it even, but you know, say a little something sexual here, a little suggestion there, a little innuendo, see how the woman responds. And they're, they're looking for an opportunity at some level. I wonder if, uh, I hadn't thought too much about it until in the context of this uh, discussion, we usually just stop at verse four, the beginning of verse five, it says, let your conduct be without covetousness. Yeah. Uh, that was certainly the 10th commandment. Yeah. Uh, and so as we think about not only not practicing those things or not saying them out loud, we need to stop desiring those things. Yeah. Well, and you, I asked, what's the 10th commandment? Let's answer that because there are a lot of people today who wouldn't know what the 10th commandment is. What's the 10th commandment? Thou shalt not covet. And, and in, the, in, the, in Exodus 20, there are a number of examples of things one might covet and we're told not to. And, and one of them is... Don't covet your neighbor's wife. There's another passage that comes to mind, Romans the 13th chapter and verse 13. Uh, and I'm actually going to back up and read starting in verse um, 11. So, but verse 13 is the one to which I want to really call people's attention. Romans 13, verse 11 through 13. And this, knowing the season, that already it is time for you to awake out of sleep, for now is salvation nearer to us than when we first believed. The night is far spent, and the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk becomingly as in the day, not in, and this translation says, reveling and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and jealousy. Chambering. Chambering, as I understand it, be kind of like, well, kind of like bed hopping from one chamber to another, one bed to another. And that's the way a lot of men live and think. A passage that deals, that's dealing more directly with it. A passage deals with what we might call the sexual harassment, more indirectly, the type of conversation that Joe was talking about would be Ephesians chapter 5, talking about things that if we're in Christ, we're going to put this stuff off. Uh, Verse 3, but immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk suggesting, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. but rather the giving of thanks. That's just an atmosphere that we should not have among God's people. God's people should be almost like an island of purity peace and safety in the midst of this world, which as we see is, 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 is getting worse and worse as far as, as sexual harassment, things like that are concerned. Well, do we see examples in the Bible of sexual harassment, something that would be similar to um, what's, what has been in the news uh, a whole lot lately? 
Um, and as we go to that question, Gardner, I'm going to throw that to you. But as we go to that question, let me remind our viewers, if you want to post questions or comments to the Facebook page, uh, Noah Andrews, our webcast engineer, will get those to us. We get them a little bit quicker if you're watching by our Zoom app. And you can use the Q&A icon at the bottom of the window and post those questions there, and we'll try to get to them. But Gardner, do we see examples in the Bible of what, what is the kind of thing that's been in the news lately? Some are rather blatant. You know, you have the men of Sodom uh, uh, chasing after the visitors to, uh, to suggestively. That's almost much more avert than what we're talking about now. You have Tamar, David's uh, daughter, uh, who was... Um, Accosted by Second uh, Samuel the Second Samuel the thirteenth um, chapter is that where that is I believe so and and that's when Tamar is the uh, it's her it's her own half brother right who want who desires her sexually and um, and has her come to his room under the pretense that he is sick and needs to be cared for and then he assaults her. That's a that's a, a an obvious case. It almost looks like in the book of Ruth, uh, there in chapter two, that Boaz seems to be protecting Ruth from something, uh, uh, telling her that she can walk with, she can glean with his people, and let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not insult her. Uh, there's some type that she was in danger of being insulted by some of the men there. He's protecting her. Maybe a reference to something like this. I think so. And let, I think it'd be good if we read that passage because that to me portrays a climate uh, that is similar to, to the, to the climate that we're talking about today. Um, and this is in Romans, the third chapter. And uh, I think it's right at the end. Is it right at the end of the third? Right. Chapter? Ruth. Uh, I, I, um, second chapter. Ruth chapter 2, you could start with verse 14. Uh, the verse that seems to be protecting her from insults would be 15. Uh, but um, here again, it's something we're reading in to it perhaps a little bit, but it seems to imply it. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, I'm reading verse 14, Come here that you may eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. She sat beside the reapers, and he served her roasted grain, and she ate and was satisfied and had some left. When she rose to glean, Boaz commanded his servant, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not insult her. And you shall purposely pull out for her some grain from the bundles, and leave it that she may glean, and do not rebuke her. There's a protective spirit that we see with Boaz here that may imply the word insult. I I did not look that word up, but that there was some danger of being rebuked or insulted in some way in that type of a setting. Well, and you picture a woman, and and she's a foreigner, she's a Moabite, and so she is the kind of woman who could easily be vulnerable, doesn't have strong community ties. She's here in this field, um, and there are a bunch of male servants out there, reapers, whatever, and uh, she could be easily prey to somebody's sexual advances or taking advantage of her in various ways. And uh, so Boaz does seem to be protecting her here. It's an old problem, and yet uh, it's hard to pin down statistics on this because it's a private type of thing. There are a few that reveal the the growth of the problem. Uh, The Equal Employment Opportunity Commission does take statistics on this type of thing, and and they 
they've pointed out that between 2000 and 2011, these are a little bit old on the statistics, but there was a, a, an increase of 34% on uh, these uh, of complaints about sexual harassment. I think sometimes we talk about the growth in our own culture of this type of behavior. There's a big elephant in the room that nobody seems to want to mention. Mention it. Pornography. Role. Well, has that had and this explosion of, of abuse and complaint? Yeah. So, uh, and I don't remember the statistics. I don't have them at hand, but Libby, my wife, was telling me she saw an article just recently, the, the, the percentages of men in various age groups. And I think it was, you know, it might have been one age group up to about age 25 or 30, and then another age group, those above. I got here when you want them. Yeah. And, 79% and, of men between 18 and 30 see pornographic sites at least once a month. And the older you get, it's a little more controlled. 67% of men between 31 and 49 see them at least once a month. But here's the shocking thing, Jeff, is that when Christians, supposed Christians, we're talking probably, the, uh, you know, so-called Christians are polled, that there's not really much difference. That's about the percentage among Christians. And I know even informally in some of the camps that we've had, where we've tried to help some of the young men with this program, those statistics aren't far off among young men who claim to be Christians. Three quarters have a problem of going inside of seeing pornographic pages at least once a month. And here's the thing. You can't fill yourself with these degrading images of women and be constantly titillated without it changing your concept of who a a woman is. You, you stop looking upon her as a command, a companion that God's made for her, and the old. You start looking upon her as an object, and um, it's got to have a lot to do with what's going on today. And yet, no one wants to mention it. It's a sacred cow. I, alcohol has always been a kind of sacred cow. No one wants to mention the the tons of problems caused by it because the genie's out of the bottle. It's legal everywhere. Same thing is true of pornography. It's a sacred cow that no one wants to mention regarding this problem. All right. Yeah. And as you, as you were talking about the, uh, for instance, the equal opportunity employment or whatever that agency is and the statistics that they have on this. The thing is, when we're talking about roughly uh, two thirds or three fourths of the male population engaged in pornography, well, you said that's going to include professing Christians it's, it's going to include the people in these agencies. And so we're all in an uproar, including the people in these agencies. Oh, we need to keep all these statistics about the number of women who've been sexually harassed. Uh, I'll do that as soon as I get through looking at my pornography here on my computer screen. We're so you know, consistent. Yeah, we've, we've got a fundamental problem in this culture. And, and, and we're looking at a symptom of that fundamental problem. But the fundamental problem is getting away from God's word and what God's word says about sexuality and the relationships between men and women. And that relationship, that sexual relationship belongs in marriage and, and therefore shouldn't be out there in, in the office place or in the workplace or wherever. So go ahead, Joe, you look like you're, well, I was just say, I think one of the things we need to really think about is we're not going to find a solution to, uh, to these problems uh, culturally or nationally uh, because those that are in charge don't want a solution to these problems. Uh, advertising agencies, you know, just 
going through you know the billboards out on the highway or whatever everything is based on the degrading of women uh, to sell a car to sell a beer bottle or whatever um, and then uh, the politicians and so forth you know to some degree the difference between them is that those that have the power to manipulate women uh, versus those who don't have the power society is not going to give us an answer for that and uh, we've got to then fight it as a church and as a family and as men individually. We've got a comment here, uh, and the comment is a reference to the passage Proverbs 6, 27 through 29. It's from Andy Dieselkamp, one of the viewers, and he um, quotes the passage, Can a man take fire to his bosom and his clothes not be burned? And then he offers this comment, Our culture is rightly wringing its hands about sexual harassment, but it wants to address the problem while continuing to embrace fire, porn, fornication, divorce, adultery, homosexuality, etc. Not possible. And, and that's right. I mean, in, in the midst of, in the midst of this epidemic and, and all the news about sexual harassment, how many movies do we still have that, that are, have to be rated R or something because of sexually explicit content? Uh, on the in the theaters right now, uh, and how many commercials do we see on TV? As you were alluding to, right now we're we're wanting to play with the fire. You play with fire, you're going to get burned. Play with the fires, we pour gasoline on it, and say, "How can we control it?" Then uh, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, the further we get away from God, the worse it's going to get. That's the bottom line. I, I think what we're seeing, uh, Paul referred to those whose God was their belly. And as, as, as society rejects the true God, it's never as a society accepted the true God. But the further most people go away from the true God, the more the God's going to be the belly. And when the God's the belly, uh, then there's behavior is going to be uh, like that of animals with no, with no restraint of any kind. And this is the result. Well, but, you know, we've been raised to think that we're like the animals, and an animal has instincts, and a man has instincts. So is a man not responsible for his action if he's just acting instinctively? Darwinism would certainly uh, promote the kind of uh, chest-thumping masculinity that we see pervasive in our society. But so so is that a yes or a no? (laughs) (laughs) An absolute yes. Yes. Yeah. A man is responsible. This is the thing. We are created in the image of God. We are spiritual beings. Yes, we have instincts. Yes, we have desires and all of that kind of thing. But the the very idea of being a spiritual being, of being created in the image of God, is that I'm not governed by my instincts. I'm not governed by my desires. Eve, in the Garden of Eden in Genesis, the third chapter, had a natural desire for food. Um... And hunger is something that God gave her, and it's a good thing. But she cannot be enslaved to it. She has to subordinate that desire to the will of God. And a spiritual being can do that. I'm a man. You guys are men. Yes, we have desires. Uh, But whatever we're faced with, whatever stimuli we're faced with, we are not mere animals that are slaves to our instincts. We are to subordinate our desires and make choices to act or not act, to behave in a wrong way or not behave in a wrong way, in accordance with God's word, God's will. And that brings me back to 
marriage is the place where those sexual desires can be satisfied and, and not outside. Well, maybe we need to get close to home here. Uh, have any of you dealt with any cases of sexual harassment in churches and congregations? I have. I mean, I've had to, and it's hard to know how to handle it sometimes. And the problem is that sometimes some of the suggestive comments are so subtle that uh, a woman, for example, does not know if she should go and and uh, report this or not. Did he mean it or did he not mean it? And, of course, that's the nature of this type of behavior is the subtlety of it. And uh, it's I've known of gospel preachers who make indiscreet comments, who have made indiscreet comments to uh, godly women. And uh, where do you go? Do you talk to the elders about this? Do you cause a big brouhaha? This is this. This is the same type of challenge that, that a lot of women in our culture have. How well, do you go? Well, there, and there sometimes is. There are, sometimes some of the accusations are not true. Yeah, there is some. There can be some ambiguity, but this is we see an expression several times in the New Testament: greet one another with a holy kiss. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, and in the culture of the New Testament, a kiss would have been a typical way of greeting one another. A kiss can be holy or it can be unholy. And Christians were warned, you greet one another, you, when you kiss one another, make sure it's a holy kiss, not an inappropriate one. There might be a context where somebody would wonder, I'm not sure what, I mean, certainly some kisses would be quite, quite clearly uh, unholy. But there's another passage that comes to mind, that's 1 Timothy, the fifth chapter, and, and Paul is telling Timothy, who, whom Paul regards as a young man, it's often thought he might have been in his around 40 years old or something like that. But nonetheless, he's regarded as a young man. In chapter 5 of 1 Timothy, he's told, Rebuke not an elder, an older man, but exhort him as a father. The younger men as brethren, the older women as mothers, the younger women as sisters in all purity. I think it's interesting that Paul goes to pains to say, in your dealings with the younger women, you be sure that you are conducting yourself in all purity. And this is something in our relationship in a congregation that we have to be conscious of. As, as human beings, men and women in a congregation, we have to deal with these same stimuli and desires, and um, we have to be on guard even there. One thing I would say that if some male disciple has a problem with this, usually it's not going to happen just once. And I've, I've told some sisters sometimes, keep an eye on him. Let's make sure. But the subtlety of it is where it makes it difficult and when to cause it. I think perhaps we can talk of the reference of going and talking to the individual. That's hard. Go and talk with someone of confidence. And uh, sometimes there's an explanation. I did not mean it to be taken that way. But it becomes to be a pattern. I think definitely churches need to work. It needs to be zero tolerance for this type of thing among God's people. But but I mean, you do have the situation: a man bumps into a woman, and right. she she's not looking, she's not sure what the bump meant, and she she's wondering. Well, all right. The the spirit of love between Christians, love believes all things, hopes all things. Love doesn't assume the worst. And so maybe she needs to talk with him. Maybe she needs to take her husband with her and just say, you know, maybe the first time she needs to assume that it was just an inadvertent bump and he was not aware or whatever. 
But then if it happens more than once, if it happens repeatedly, then you say, hmm, and she needs to, to go with her husband and talk with him or with him and his wife if he's married. Or if she's not married, she may, she may need to, um, you know, one of the overseers go with her, something like that, and say, you know, several times lately this has happened. That would probably put an end to it. That's good practical advice, I think. And, and I think the repetition and the pattern comes into play. If it's one time isolated, perhaps, and probably it was an accident, but the repetition of comments in particular that are out of place reveal there's a problem. I think one of the things that we need to try to be is, is shields for, especially the, the more vulnerable, uh, the young ladies who aren't represented uh, by husbands and so forth, that uh, we need to, to let them know that they can uh, have a discussion about these things if they feel like they've been uh, harassed in some way or if they, if they sense uh, danger in those areas. Uh, I guess I would hope that, that women would feel comfortable coming and, and saying something so that they could get the help. We, we don't want them to feel like they're, uh, they have to fend this off by themselves. Kind of like we're talking about in the book of Ruth, Boaz being a shield and protecting, looking out for uh, Ruth. Exactly. Yeah. Ruth, too, he's identified, depending on your, uh, I guess, from the Hebrew, uh, he's a virtuous man. And so... Uh, you know, I think that stands uh, with with his virtue that he's going to be that defender. Now, w- before we leave this topic, we've got one other topic we, we want may want to get to here this afternoon. Um, but but before we leave this topic, two things. Let me encourage our viewers again. If you have comments or questions you would like to uh, to send to us, please do either in the comments section of the Facebook page or um, by means of the Q and A tab down there at the bottom of your zoom app. Uh, one of the things that, that one of the things that has been of course a part of this whole discussion is um, the idea that women are never ever to blame. They never have any fault in, in, in this kind of thing. And that's something that's often said. And, and we want to make it clear, no matter how a woman is dressed, no matter how a woman acts, a man has a responsibility to conduct himself rightly. So we talked about in Genesis, the 39th chapter, when, uh, when Joseph is in the house of Potiphar, and Potiphar's wife is making uh, not just overtures, she's asking Joseph to lie with her, and he flees. He runs out. He makes the choice. I'm not going to have a part in this, even though there was an opportunity and there was an enticement. Uh, Proverbs, the fifth chapter, and Proverbs, the seventh chapter, um, talk about the seductress, the seductive woman. And the man is warned that he needs to conduct himself rightly, regardless of what a woman does. But I'll tell you something. I, Christian women, Christian women need to understand that uh, they can be stumbling blocks, there is a warning that Jesus makes in Matthew, the 18th chapter, against us being stumbling blocks uh, in any way in life. And if I am dressing in a provocative way, that does not, that does not justify a man from coming on to me sexually or harassing me if I'm the woman. That doesn't justify the man doing any of that. He's wrong, and he's responsible for his own actions. But you know what? 
if I put a stumbling block in somebody else's way, if I, if I entice somebody to steal something, if, if I entice somebody to lose their temper uh, by my conduct and my conduct is wrong in what I'm doing, I'm going to be held accountable for that. And women need to understand that, yes, you know what? However you act, the man is responsible for his own conduct. But you know what, women, you need to be aware that in your dress, in your behavior, uh, you can be a stumbling block and God will hold us accountable for being stumbling blocks. That's true. And yet I think we need, and of course, maybe we're reiterating this too much, but I know some godly women who dress very carefully, who are very discreet and have still been victims. And that, of course, happens too. And yet to say there's absolutely no responsibility on the part of, of women is is probably a bit of an exaggeration. We all need to be holy and pure. Before all of us do. All right. Well, any closing thoughts on that before we move on to another subject? Just one quick thought, because this is a, an issue, and, and feel free to disagree with me on this. Um, there's also pretty strong conversations in from the media and as a result amongst other people uh, about what if the man is innocent and he's been falsely accused? Um, uh, you know, that's, that's a big question mark in different situations. Uh, I just think about Joseph in that case. Mm-hmm. He was clearly innocent, falsely accused. And so what did he do? He completely trusted in God. Right. You know, I think that's what we've got to come back to is I can't keep people from accusing me falsely, but I'm going to trust that God's going to take care of me in the best way that he sees fit. And I'm going to serve to his glory, even if I am maligned or imprisoned, even for that. Mm-hmm. It's a hard thing. It's a hard thing. And I've known of men who have been accused of things. And there was a considerable question about the veracity of the accusation. And his life, you know, in a couple of cases, their lives were ruined. Um, and I know of a man who spent considerable time in jail. Um, you know, I wasn't there. I don't know, but as a Christian, uh, there's first Peter chapter five and, and I, and this comes to mind first Peter chapter five. Uh, if we are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are ye because the spirit of glory and the spirit of God rest upon you for let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler in other man's matters. So don't suffer because you've done wrong. What that means is don't do wrong. But if a man suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this name. And sometimes we limit that passage to the idea of I suffer because somebody's persecuting me because I'm a Christian. But in the context in 1 Peter, if we go back to 1 Peter chapter 2, he's been talking about suffering not just because somebody doesn't like it that I'm a Christian. He's talking about slaves who have untoward masters or abusive masters, and the slave is a Christian and he suffers, and he takes it, and he follows Christ's example. And Paul, Peter says in 1 Peter 2.20, What glory is it if when you sin and are buffeted for it, you shall take it patiently? But if when you do well and suffer, you shall take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. And then in chapter 3, the woman who has an unbelieving husband. Uh, in, in all of this, what you see is there are going to be times when we're going to suffer unjustly. And it may not be that somebody's just attacking me because I'm a Christian, but I'm suffering unjustly. If I persevere and serve God, put my trust in God as Joseph did, 
then God is pleased with that. Good application. Stephen Couple says, our, one of our viewers, part of our calling is to suffer unjustly while doing the right thing. Well, that's what I was trying to say. Thank you, Stephen. <clears throat> In about a dozen words, I, I've got to learn to be more brief. <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, uh, let's move on to another topic. And we just have oh, about 10 minutes left, a little less than that. But I just want to touch on something because, Gardner, I've appreciated what I've heard you say when we talk about the nature of the church. So many people think of the church, even if they say, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I don't believe in denominations. Nonetheless, they think of the church in terms that are very outward. And they are looking for the right church. And um, we, we certainly want to be right. And there certainly is the church of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ. Um, but there's a concept here that we need to work on a little bit. You have some thoughts you want to share with us? I think what a lot of people have in mind is a, a network. What is the right network of congregation? What yeah. is the right religious movement? The right network of congregations is this network we call the Church of Christ or the network, uh, the conservative Church of Christ or the uh, movement we belong. The right movement is the right church, the Stone Campbell Restoration Movement. That's the right church. And, of course, when we're thinking that way, we're far, far, far from the Scriptures. Uh, the Scriptures speak of God's churches being saved individuals, those who have, who have uh, obtained the mercy of God been repented and baptized and therefore added to, to his body. And uh, we're not about seeking a right movement, or we should not be about seeking a right movement, or seeking the right network of congregations or religious traditions. We should be all about seeking Christ. And I think that's where we, I've had to deal with it in my own mind. I have to deal with, I think, a lot among some of our Latin brethren who the idea is that the church God's church is, is just better. It's the same general makeup. It's a collection of congregations or traditions. It's just better than the other ones. So isn't, let's, let's ask this question. Is God's church a collection of congregations or not? And where would you go in Scripture to say one way or the other? Well, I, of course, the word church is not in Acts 2.47, although the idea is there. The Lord added to the church their number daily those who are being saved, the individuals. And I think a good question, you know, would be where uh, where do we see the church described as a collection uh, or a, a network of local congregations, the congregation of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven and so forth. And, and another passage that comes to my mind is 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 27. Paul's been talking about the body of Christ as he discusses spiritual gifts. And his, his point is to say, just like our physical body has many parts and they're all important, part of the same body, so also the body of Christ has many parts and they're all important. But then in verse 27, he says this, you are the body of Christ and severally, or another translation says, individually members thereof. Each individual Christian is a member of the body of Christ. The body of Christ is made up of individual people, not groups of people, not collections of people, not congregations. Living stones, not, not congregations. Yeah. Just practically, I, I think most people actually agree with it. 
except for when they began to, to think in maybe in, in some other terms. But uh, think about the diatrophies. You know, if if the if the body of Christ is made up of the end of, of a bunch of congregations put together, diatrophies was in that church that John is writing about. Is he in the body of Christ with the attitude that's talked about there? Certainly. The fornicator at the church in the church at Corinth, or those whom John says in First John chapter two, um, in verse what is it, verse eighteen or so, they went out from us, for they were not of us. Well, yes. before they went out, they were in us, but they were not of us. But they were in us. <laughs> they were in the. That all illustrates the fact that you can be a part of a local group of Christians and not be in God's body. Right. Vice versa, you can be in God's body and still not be in a local group and the Ethiopian eunuch is used as that example of he's going to he's going to Ethiopia he's not a member of a local church but he's in the body of Christ so Gardner if that's true then then how is it that I find myself in the right body how do I find myself in the body of Christ if I can't just find a congregation and get in it and say that makes me a part of the body of Christ how do I get to be a part of the body of Christ by getting into Christ ah. uh, that's 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 all it is synonymous being in Christ is synonymous with being in the body of Christ now we need to make this point clear that when we're in Christ we're not going to be hermits standing off by ourselves and not having thing, anything to do with anyone else we're going to want to work and worship with other Christians in a local congregation Paul is saying to join himself to the disciples there in Acts chapter 9 uh, we're going to want to meet and work with other Christians but that's really a, a separate question how do i become a part of christ's body i would even say we're commanded to work with other christians and work within a congregation but that still doesn't mean my being a part of the body of christ is a function of my being a part of a congregation um, i heard a lesson recently and, and i hope was able to make some clarifications along this line about choosing a church choosing a church and and i felt like that the word church there can be applied both Christ's body, and a local group. And my suggestion was, when you're talking about choosing something, choosing a congregation, that is what we do choose. We do choose a local body to work with them. We don't choose to be a part of God's universal body. We're added to it. He's the one who by grace adds us to it. We really have nothing to do with that except by accepting that grace. Yeah, Paul in Acts the ninth chapter, he'd been Saul persecuting Christians. He sees Jesus on the way to Damascus. He becomes a Christian. After some time, he's going to Jerusalem. Verse 26, the American standard says he essayed to join himself to the disciples. He tried to join himself to the disciples. He's already a part of the body of Christ, but he's going to make an effort to be a part of this group of Christians there in Jerusalem. We got a comment from Stephen Couple, again, one of our viewers. The church is not a group of groups but a group of individuals. Great point. This was hard for me to grasp coming out of denominationalism. He says he likes the reference to Hebrews 12, 23 to show that. Um, Andy comments, how do we become a part of the body of Christ or how do we become a part of Christ? And he cites Galatians chapter three and verse 27, which says, as many of you as were baptized into Christ did put on Christ. I like to emphasize Romans the sixth chapter where we are baptized into Christ's death. Everybody understands it's Christ's death that saves us. It's at the point of baptism that we become a part of that death. We're not baptized into a local congregation. We're baptized into uh, Christ's death. What Stephen said about that being a hard thing to grasp is true, and I, I've struggled with that in my own mind. I think sometimes I'm clearer now than I have been 
And yet as I work with other disciples, I realize the distinction is, is not always there between what is a, lo- a congregation and what is Christ's body. And we make statements about Christ's body in the context of a local congregation, and we can confuse the issue very easily. We very often. Memo. We need this memo. We need to get it. It's from the scriptures. Yeah, very, very often. All right. Well, Joe, you have a closing comment? Uh, just the passage doesn't actually use the word cry, uh, church, but to me it helps with this concept uh, in Galatians 4, 9. He says, but now after you have known God, or rather are known by God. And I, I like that, how Paul's kind of said something, and he's like, no, there's one better than that. <laughs> yeah, I like that too. All right, well, listen, uh, Gardner, thanks for being with us today. Um, thanks also to thanks Noah Andrews, our webcast engineer. He kept us uh, up to date with the comments from the viewers, and thanks to our viewers for watching and for your participation. Um, next week, uh, I think we are going to go back. We had a, a whole list of questions we were working on a couple of weeks ago, Joe. I think we're going to go back to that next week. Exactly, yes. We'll look to follow up on some of those questions. I'm glad you saved those tough questions for next week. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thank you all for watching. We'll, Lord willing, see you next week.